0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's Easter weekend, so we're going to listen to a program I taped earlier this year with George Shackelford. He's the curator of Monet the Early Years, a show that's now at the Legion of Honor in San Francisco. It features about 60 paintings from the first phase of Claude Monet's career, from a painting Monet made in Normandy in 1858 when he was 18 years old, until 1872 when Monet lived in Argentile along the Seine near Paris. The exhibition debuted last winter at the Kimball Art Museum, where Shackelford is the museum's deputy director. Monet is on view in San Francisco through May 29th. The show's beautiful catalog was published by the Kimball and is distributed by Yale University Press. George Shackelford, after the break. (coughs) The Nasher Sculpture Center presents Richard Sarah Prints, on view through April 30th. Showcasing over 45 years of printmaking by Sarah, an American sculptor best known for his large steelworks, the show reflects the artist's interest in process, the monumental, and a desire to push the boundaries of traditional printmaking methods and techniques. Learn more about the show at nashersculpturecenter.org. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Dimensions of Black, a collaboration with the San Diego African American Museum of Fine Art at its downtown location through April 30th. Drawn from the museum's holdings, this exhibition of more than 30 works by African-American artists from the 1960s to today traverses crucial interests and perspectives that have shaped the art of our time. The collaboration presents a series of accompanying programs throughout the exhibition. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Often referred to as America's jewel box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit kimballart.org for more information. And we're back. George Shackelford, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Glad to be here. This show covers Monet's earliest decade and a half, roughly 1858 to 1872. 1872 is the year in which Monet paints Impression Sunrise, the painting that, that would give the ism its name, if you will. Why is, is that 14-year period, that initial period, worthy of examination, and what can we hope to or expect to learn from it?
1: I think it's one of the most important periods in Monet's life in that it is the time in which he is deciding who he's going to be. He is trying out new painting methods that will be useful to him throughout his career. And it's a time when he is not only inventing new ways to paint, but also simultaneously inventing who Claude Monet is, not only for himself, but for a a public that he desires to recognize him.
0: When you say he's coming up with new ways to paint, could you be a little more specific? How does, how does that look on the canvas?
1: Sure. The first painting in this exhibition is, in a sense, a little bit of an outlier. It's painted in 1858 under the tutelage of Boudin, who is painting in the same field nearby. And it's an alarmingly good picture for a picture to be painted by a 17-year-old boy. It is scarily, scarily competent, and yet it is very much still in the manner of an artist like Daubigny, who was famed among the Barbizon artists for his paintings of you know fields and rivers. From that rather tightly worked object, you move within a matter of 14 catalog numbers in the catalogue résonne and five years to a, a, a remarkably different painting that looks like he has been trying to abstract Theodore Russo. From this point on you see him going back and forth between a hand that is delicate and sometimes very tender to one that is bold, incisive, blatant sometimes even or or even harsh. And he the Monet's development is by no means a kind of linear progress that you would you know be able to line things up and have them come one after the other after the other, because he goes backwards, forwards, makes a great leap forward, and then decides to go backwards and do something else. So in that way, we see him literally on the canvas trying out ideas. The most, the most blatant of these tryouts is the pair of paintings that he paints side by side with Renoir at uh, the bathing, bathing place La Grande on the island of Bougie, at Bougilal, And he is in those two paintings, once at the Met, once at the National Gallery in London, he's really taking risks, going as far out on a limb, I think, as he goes in this period and creating some paintings. He referred to them by the French term pochade, which translates roughly as a bad sketch. He paints these pictures that are truly experimental just for the painting of them, I think. It's all, I think it's really all about the exercise of, of, the representation of something, an effect, and how how abstracted, how sort of staccato, how sort of shorthand he can make that effect and still have it uh, come across.
0: So just to fill in a couple titles of paintings you mentioned, because we'll have all of these paintings up on manpodcast.com, the, the 1858 painting that you referenced is View Near Ruel, and we'll try to have the related, very closely related, Boudin and Daubigny paintings. The paintings at La Grenouillère.
1: Yeah. Metropolitan Museum of Art, 1869, and National Gallery, London.
0: One is, is, is titled Bathers at La Grenouillère,
1: and the other is... Probably Bathing Place at La Grenouillère. Oh, just, or
0: the, the other is just La Grenouillère at the Met. So we'll have all of those up on, on manpodcast.com. So if this is Monet's foundational period, the, the this kind of first decade, what is he building the foundation out of? Is it a particular style? Is it particular geographies and places?
1: Monet really begins his career as a draftsman, as a uh, a drawer of, of caricatures in Le Havre where he grew up, and he comes under the under the the, the eye of Eugène Boudin who is from Le Havre and who is then uh, not so well-known as he was to become a few years later, but a, a a well-known landscape painter. With Boudin's encouragement, Monet begins to paint, and so that's the transition from the, the artist who is essentially basically self-taught or had high school lessons in drawings, and an artist who is trained by a master painter. With Boudin's uh, Help. He in, enters art school in Paris. He studies in the studio of Charles glaire the Swiss painter of who's living in Paris and who uh, has a big studio of of rather liberal ways of studying. Not a whole lot of supervision, but a but a, a good sort of fermenting environment in which to learn. But from this essentially rudimentary technique that he's learning, he is taking the example, I think, first of Courbet and then later, but surprisingly later, of Manet and sort of reforming the notion of landscape as practiced by the artists like Corot or Rousseau or Daubigny in the so-called Barbizon school and making the effects generally broader, more emphatically brushy, if you will. And a good example of this is the painting the Luncheon on the Grass from 1866, a vast uh, canvas, it was originally 13 by 18 feet, that he begins for the Salon of 1866, having exhibited the previous year a beach scene, now at the Kimball, that was a, a, a smaller picture. When he enlarges the scope of the painting, he also simultaneously enlarges the brushstroke, enlarges the the effects so that you end up with something that if you saw it reproduced small in a book looks perfectly detailed but when you are standing before it everything about it is gigantic the the leaves are painted with a brush that must be an inch and a half wide nothing about it is minute and detailed it's all rendered at a sort of at a sort of level of of finish that would have been had it ever been exhibited truly astonishing he doesn't show the canvas. He rolls it up. It gets mildewed. He unrolls it. He has to cut off the mildewed bits. It's now in two parts. Now at the Musée d'Orsay, which has very kindly led it to us for the exhibition.
0: Is Monet consciously, intentionally working on a decorative scale because he's interested in the decorative tradition in in *Luncheon on the Grass*, or is there another reason he's he's working that big?
1: Well, honestly. On a practical level, I think he's painting that big so that he will inevitably be noticed. There's a, I think there's a a sort of PR strategy there that though he got noticed for his pair of seascapes in 1865, got a review, he's 24 years old, he's made a really brilliant start at the Salon, he decides in the way that, frankly, that a 25-year-old might well do, to say, okay, I gotta really make a huge impact this time. And the best way to do it is to A, change subject matter. So no more beach, we're gonna be in the woods and it's gonna be full of people. And then I better also make it a different scale. Let's make it 13 by 18 feet. And and that creates something that would have, without question, had it gotten into the salon, been almost scandalous, almost certainly a scandalous picture in the way that a few years before Manet's uh, luncheon on the grass was the scandal of the Salon des Refusés.
0: So it's not until much, much later in his career then that Monet becomes interested in decoration.
1: I think so. I think that there are certainly hints in all of Monet of an interest in what the theorists would have called quote, the decorative, close quote, which is to say the aspect of all art that is concerned with abstract qualities, the placement of paint on the surface of the canvas, the arrangement of the forms, that which does not necessarily convey meaning or subject matter but which is clearly just about the the process of the paint itself. And that is a a tendency that flows through his art that goes all the way through the series paintings of the 1890s, and that erupts in earnest when he decides to paint the big mural decorations uh, after the First World War. But at this point, I think when he's painting a big painting, it's not about making it a mural. He's not painting a picture that, a few years before, Puvis de Chavannes had painted the great mural cycle that's now at Amiens, for instance. And they were gigantic mural size paintings, originally free on, on their own stretchers, that were bought by the state and installed as a staircase decoration uh, in a new museum. Monet's not intending that this painting should ever become that kind of painting, I think. I think, I think the billboard quality of it would A, have rendered it almost unsaleable. I mean, who has a, who, who, what private buyer is going to buy an 18 feet, feet wide painting, much less a 13 foot high one. And so he, it becomes really, I think, a stunt. Very much like the the fact that in 1876, he paints the great japonaise in Boston as a, purely as a stunt for the second impressionist exhibition. It's a way of getting himself noticed. You know, in a, in, a, in a show that is dominated by landscape painters, suddenly the chief landscape painter paints a, a, a figure picture that's bright red. In the same way, I think here, Monet had gotten his start as the painter of the seascape, and he wants to say, there are more brushes in my box than, than just waves and clouds.
0: Let's dip into those, those seascapes a bit. In, in the early 1860s, the first paintings Monet sends to the salon are indeed marine paintings. And you note in the catalog that there was a rising fashion in Paris and France for marine scenes at about this time. Why? Was it simply because middle-class Parisians were beginning to make it to the coast or was there something else to it?
1: I wish I could explain it in in any sort of documented terms. We know it happened because we see the we see the volume of things, and we see the titles of things that were exhibited at the salon, and the titles of things that were were sold. Why they were being bought, the motivation for the the collectors to be interested in them is a, is something I I don't really have an explanation for. I think that certainly the sea, the painting of the sea, does. Perhaps more than the painting of the land or of the forest, give a painter a, a great opportunity to explore really different effects or a wide variety of effects on in the same composition. Because you have, in the case of, say, the Kimball's uh, Pointe de la Eve at Low Tide, the painting that really inspired me to organize this exhibition, that salon painting of 1865, you have not only the sand, the the gritty, rocky sand with its little pools that can reflect light. You have the surface of the water here at low tide, so not so many waves, and a surface that is very interesting and 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 multifaceted and changing all the time. And then you have the sky, and the sky in this case is is either it's going to rain or it has just rained? I mean, it's it's very much the sense of of sort of stormy weather with breaks in the sky to go to deep blue, deep blue, vast infinity sky in the background. So more than a more than a forest view, there is this sort of boundless horizon, a limitless sky, a wonderful view out to sea, and for the painter who wants to either practice his, his ability to paint natural effects or else to display his ability to paint natural effects. A seascape is a, is a great idea.
0: And that painting is full of different surfaces from the water to the beach to the rocky beach to the corbeesque esque hillside, stretching it a bit, to a surface that one can imagine but not touch the sky and the clouds. I mean, it's all there.
1: It really is. It really is. And it's, and it's what got him noticed by, by the critics. You know, They'd never seen him before. Manet saw a, a painting by an artist named Monet and said, who is this guy pastiching me, stealing my name? And, and they weren't meet, to meet until a few years later. But so he, he really did, was noticed very much from the start in, in that regard.
0: The Kimball painting is an 1865 period. In in, in this early period, in the mid to late 1860s, a lot of the paintings Monet is submitting to the Salon were rejected by the jury. I'm going to offer two of them here, two strikingly different paintings. We'll have images of both on the website, of course. Can you tell us why you think each of these would have been rejected? The first one is Women in the Garden from uh, 1867
1: i think it's the
0: the shockingly
1: flat unmodulated areas of of pure color that don't allow the visitor to enter the canvas as if it were deep space monet's insistence on using essentially undifferentiated patches of color and and to Distinguish, say, light and shadow, where, so the, li- the lit up part of something is very lit up and there's a h- sharp edge between it and the uh, shadowed part of something, whether that's grass, a path, a-, a dress. And I think that, let's use the word schematic, uh, almost sort of a jigsaw effect in in these paintings was more than the Salon of 1867 could bear. Mind you, all of Monet's colleagues were refused in the Salon of 1867. It was an unusually harsh jury, and it was so harsh that they were also shocked that they started thinking about whether they should withdraw from the Salon and exhibit independently. Exactly what they would do in 1874 with the first Impressionist exhibition to be a, a, a group of independent artists exhibiting simultaneously with the Salon but in a different venue and, and independent of a jury. So that idea has its, has its birth, if you will, in the Salon of 1867 and the rejection of Monet, Basile, Renoir, Sisley, etc.
0: Women in the Garden would remain an important painting to him all his life. He would he would talk about it at, at length,
1: along with the Luncheon on the Grass.
0: Yeah, near the end of both of which, I guess he held on to till the end of his life. And I mean, he had to get one of them back, but he had it at the end of his life. That in a
1: way, be. he had to get both of them back because it wasn't oh, until that's right. Yeah. He paid the debt for the the Luncheon on the Grass that uh, he got it back from the guy who had it on collateral, if you will, a
0: former then, landlord, I think.
1: Yes, exactly. And then Bazille had bought Women on the Grass, somewhat under pressure from Monet, who needed some more money. And so he says, take this painting, Bazille, and now you owe me for it, and you need to pay me on time every month. He even complains that Bazille is running late in his payments. Uh, Bazille, who, mind you, has financed him along with his aunt and, and father for the last five or six years. And he had to get that back through through the intervention in a sense of Manet from Bazille's parents after Bazille's death in the Franco-Prussian War. So he gets both of those paintings back, but after he has moved to Giverny in 1883, that, that move is, he moves finally in 83 to the house that he will occupy for the rest of his life. And it's when he has a, a fixed abode and a bigger place to, to display things that he retrieves those canvases and can put them up in his house. They move from house to garden studio, et cetera, in the last decades of his life. And he uses them, in a sense, from what I can tell from the descriptions, as touchstones of the visit to Giverny. They were one of the destinations that you took when you were going to the house after, let's say, 1895. And not only were you seeing what he was doing with his series paintings and, and later with the big water lily decorations, but you were taken to see the paintings from the 1860s as part of your lesson in what Monet meant. And I think that he does that very consciously and talks about Luncheon on the Grass and Women in the Garden. Women of the Garden, by the way, which is in the wonderful exhibition of Bazille that's going to open soon in at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris and will be coming to Washington in the springtime. So that ex, that painting is, because of its conne- connection with Bazille, in the exhibition uh, devoted to Bazille and early Impressionism.
0: There is a great photograph in the catalog of Monet taking a visitor through the, the very scene you just described. We'll try to get an image of it for the website. Speaking of, of Bazille, another painting that gets rejected by the salon is is the magpie from 1869 a painting that couldn't be any more different from women in the garden why didn't the magpie fly oh that was bad why didn't the magpie uh, make it in <laughs> take wing why did why didn't it
1: perch in the salon you know how do you, how how to explain that because it is one of monet's most ravishingly beautiful paintings is it only that you know, 150 years later, we get it? Or did it have something about it? Or, you know, was there a a jury that just didn't like what Monet was representing? There, there were people who thought of this group of artists, and they recognized them as being a group together, Basile Sisley, Renoir Monet. They recognized them as, if you will, troublemakers. And I think that the the notion of of their stirring up trouble, may well have caused a more conservative side of the Salon jury to simply say, no, let's not have these guys. So no matter how how lovely the picture is to our eyes in 18, excuse me, in in 2016, for an audience, for a, a, a jury in the late 1860s, it was a a painting that you could accuse of being summary slashed on simply a uh, uh, you know uh, to use the great expression that ruskin used of whistler throwing a pot of paint in the public's eye in this case uh, slathering tubes of white cake icing that are laid on with uh, with wide brushes and just incredibly sort of bold and, and, uh, and broad effects of oily oily paint that represents the, the fallen snow, the reflectance on the, uh, on the landscape in the distance, the, the white patches of snow clinging to a chestnut tree. All of these effects were which to us are so dear, may well have been to a salon jury uh, exactly the kind of thing that they could accuse of ineptitude in order to have an excuse to omit the offending young artist.
0: It's a superb painting. I mentioned Bazille in relation to it because it seems as though Monet uh, received the paints from which the painting was made from Bazille. From Bazille, yes.
1: He said, send me lot, white, lots of white. And so uh, you, you're you thinking that maybe he, he was needing so much white because he was going to paint a picture where certainly the dominant pigment is uh, probably white lead, and he, he uses it to great effect. Interestingly, if you measure popularity by postcard sales, which is one metric to use the, the, the term of the 21st century, it is the most popular painting at the Musée d'Orsay because it sells more postcards than any other picture there. And so to get it here on this side of the Atlantic is a, is a great pleasure. I wish we could keep it because I think it would look really beautiful at the Kimball Art Museum.
0: The Magpie is, is 1869. The next year Monet turns 30 and he is married. He gets married to to his apparently understanding wife Camille who allows him to paint his way through their Trouville honeymoon.
1: What else was he going to do? I mean maybe maybe let's think. what else was she going to do with him on the honeymoon? He he chooses to paint her so that She is simply sitting there doing what she would have been doing anyway, let's say, because the whole point of going to Truville was to get dressed up and go to the beach.
0: Promenade down the beach, yeah.
1: To promenade down the beach, or to sit in clumps of of men and women, often dominated by seated women. Uh, When you look at the paintings of Boudin for this period, and and there are paintings that were made on exactly the same vacation in 1870, because the Boudins were there with the Monet's, When you look at those paintings you see crowds of people sitting around being beautiful and that i think is what he he conspires with camille monet who was a very beautiful if somewhat exotic looking big dark eyes she is the is the subject of these paintings and two of the great ones are here, two of uh, her seated, one from the Yale Art Gallery, and the other from the Marmottan Museum in Paris. Together with a, a little sketch of her from Marmottan, and then a, a wonderful view of the of the boardwalk from Hartford, from the Wadsworth uh, Museum. the the This group of things is really a record of uh, a vacation. One of those. Moments when Monet goes to a place that is, though near La Havre, I mean, you can see the the banks of the of the channel at La across the way in one of the paintings. It's still distinct and typical of his future habit of going to a place and either ex- exploiting its uh, motifs or its available subjects to the to the greatest possible extent. You could say milking it. Um, you could say celebrating it. But this is something he does again and again from the 1870s forward, increasingly close to home as he is in Giverny and SEHs. ages. But, you know, whether to back to Trouville or back to Varangeville or uh, Dieppe in the 1880s, or then back to, down to the At the late 1880s, the Crows Valley or even Antibes or into Italy, he makes these these voyages and creates clumps of paintings about them. And this is one of those first wonderful little clumps.
0: My guest is George Shackelford. We'll be right back after a break. (laughs) The Getty invites you to explore its first online-only exhibition, The Legacy of Ancient Palmyra. War in Syria has irrevocably changed the ancient city of Palmyra, once a bustling center of culture and trade. For centuries, traveling artists and explorers have documented the site in former states of preservation. This online exhibition captures Palmyra as it was photographed for the first time by Louis Vigne in 1864 and illustrated in the 18th century by the architect Louis-Francois Cassas, Explore this ancient site at getty.edu slash palmyra. The exhibition Unfinished Conversations, new work from the collection, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. See works by artists from around the world, from Cairo to St. Petersburg and from The Hague to Recife, art that reflects on today's events and issues, exploring themes of social protest, the effect of history on the formation of identity, and how art juxtaposes fact and fiction. Visit MoMA.org for more information and tickets, and plan your visit today. And now back to my conversation with George Shackelford. As much as painting Camille on this 1870 trip, he's painting what she's wearing. And not only is he doing that, these are really some of his sketchy est or his most sketchy paintings is there any particular reason that that they are so spare or some of them some of them are so spare so sketchy so wispy almost
1: I, i'd call them patchy
0: yeah that's a better word that's a better word
1: they're incredibly summary if you were careful you could probably almost det- count in detail the number of times his brush t- touched the canvas because they're in- incredibly economical they're not using very much paint. They're quite often using the ground, the prepared commercial ground that he painted on, which is a, a kind of one of his many variations in gray rather than white. He's using that as a as a unifying tone throughout the painting and often it, it is there as a cloud or as a reflection on the water. He just doesn't paint that part of the canvas and lets it then be the white gray that pokes out. Uh, so he's, he's very economical and as befits perhaps an artist who is standing in the open air on a sandy beach, in one of the pictures from this series, uh, alas, not with us now. Um, there's actually sand on the canvas, embedded into the into the wet paint, bits of sand that were that have never dropped out. So it's a it's a it's a very interesting environment for painting, challenging. And then, as you say, he's careful about about. Making sure that you know that Camille's attire is up-to-date and fashionable without having you be able to count how many buttons there were. It's really it's a it's a it's a nice fine line, a nice sort of boundary between incredibly patchy but yet communicative imagery of of yes, she had a, a black hat or excuse me, a buff-colored hat trimmed in black ribbon. You know, her parasol was this, and it was lined in this color, and her and her skirt was this way, and here is how the bustle went. And you can see these, these images, and on the next day she was wearing blue and white stripes, for instance, and either she or someone in her retinue was also wearing blue and white stripes. It's a very interesting phenomenon of being at, at, at once experimental painting and boudin-like recording of tourism but you know when you compare it Tyler to a boudin there's nothing except the actual subject matter that connects them the way they're painted are so completely different and he has gone so far beyond what boudin would have ever been able to do frankly i don't want to i like boudin a lot but Boudin gets in one rhythm and he stays there through the eighteen nineties. It's one style of painting. And Monet is is he almost has to change to to keep moving. There needs to be there needs to be some new thing that he's thinking through to, to keep him moving forward.
0: 1870 is, is, is a big year in French history. It prompts a certain exodus of of French painters. Where did they go and and why is that? temporary departure particularly important for Monet?
1: Well, if you will, the safest place to go was to get off of the continent, and the quickest way to get off the continent was to go to England. The Franco-Prussian War had begun in August, and by the early autumn, it was very clear that it was going very badly for the French. Uh, Monet was still in an age bracket that could have been conscripted. He's 30, yeah. Though he had a a wife and son, he could conceivably have been taken up for the army. And so he really decided, I'm going to get out of here, left in early October to find a place for the family to live in London, and the family, Camille and Jean Monet, followed him. They set up in London in 1870, first living close to the city and then in Knightsbridge, and are there for uh, several months after that, in a way in
0: exile. Well, he—he, he, I guess he the, the one other kind of key point to make about Monet in London before we get to some specific paintings is that he intensifies his engagement with Pissarro and meets someone who would be important to his his business future, if you will.
1: Absolutely. Through Dovigny, who is also there, he meets the dealer Duranduel, Paul Duranduel, whose family business had been active for a, a, maybe a generation in supplying modern paintings, but pretty unremarkable modern paintings, good but not not crazy, to a an increasing buying public. Paintings by Corot or Ted Russo or Daubigny again. <laughs> he meets Durand well, and it's Durand well who lets him know that, oh, by the way, Pissarro is also here. So he reconnects with Pissarro, um, who he had been living nearby when he was in, um, in uh, Bougival. And they reconnect, and they spend time together, and go to museums together, and. But I think the I think the encounter with durand Well is almost more important, because it it's a meeting that that will then dominate the rest of his, really the rest of his career through the century. Uh, Durand-Ruel becomes the dealer to the impressionists fundamentally, and uh, and Monet's greatest champion.
0: While in London Monet continues to paint Camille there's a painting at the Musée d'Orsay that's in the exhibition from 7071 it is an enormously wildly completely different painting of Camille than than what we'd seen earlier in 1870 why is it so different
1: I think it's english I think it's I think it's Monet in a sense turning back to images that Whistler had exhibited in the 1860s in in Paris and London and Monet and Whistler knew each other and I think I think the painting is in terms of its composition mood level of detail in fact even on account of some of the little the little throwaway hints that are in it a painting on the wall that's cut in half along the bottom a japanese fan resting on the the mantelpiece there are these little details of environment that says, oh, by the way, remember my friend Whistler, he likes to cut pictures in half and he loves Japanese fans. So I think in that way, it, it has a, it has a, I'm in London now, I better figure out how to paint London differently. But I also think that it's a real illustration of what I was talking about earlier, that the development is not in one direction only. He's gotten to uh, that incredibly abbreviated way of painting in Truville in the summer, and when he gets to London in the autumn he turns back to a style that is more in keeping with paintings of, of three or four years earlier. You know, it's Tyler, it's it's when we're thinking about a period that's so short, every year seems like it it's a big, you know, passing passing time. It's almost as if we're talking about decades. But in fact, we're talking about pictures that were one or two years old. It's not like it was something that he was reaching back deeply into his youth to get. So I think the, the, that that shift back and forth between detail and abstraction, or you know, abbreviation, is is something that may just be something that was sort of natural to him. And the fact that he had that he can move between those two manners is going to be really important um, in the painting of London and, above all, in the painting of Zandam, where he moves uh, in 1871.
0: The show cuts off in, in 1872. The famous Impressionism exhibitions begin in 1874, and the catalog gets into the mid to late 1870s a good bit, in part because in those later years in the 1870s, Monet is allowing, spearheading, Extended presentations of dozens of his paintings, including the early paintings, in Paris. Why was it important for him to to show that kind of long term progress, progression, advancement in his work, even in the mid to late eighteen seventies, when he could have just been showing new stuff?
1: Absolutely, I think it's. I think he's very conscious of his image, and and one of the paintings that I discuss. At some length in that catalog is the is a picture from geneva
0: called uh, a hut at santa dress so let me set this up for a quick moment because that was going to be my next question uh this is a painting from 1867 it is just extraordinarily atypical when when you see the image on on the website you'll you'll understand what i'm talking about but it's an 1867 painting so yes sorry go ahead
1: in the first impressionist exhibition he doesn't show this picture but he shows a big painting from 1867, roughly, that is a complicated, large, multi figure, rather dark brown and white and black interior. It's a painting from the Stadel Museum in, in Frankfurt. Simultaneously, he's showing Impression Sunrise, the painting from Marmaton that, now in Marmaton, that, that gives Impressionism its name. So, on the one hand, a, a strongly rooted in in realist subject matter painting of a family at lunch. On the other hand, an almost indecipherable series of large fog effects, boat masts made ephemeral by fog and, and mist, and uh, you know a sun trying to break through. These two things are side by side in the Impressionist exhibition. Maybe not side by side, but they're in the same show painted by the same artist. They are five years apart in date. But I think that even in 1872, he's wanting you to realize that in that five years, he has changed. And that old manner and new manner are are important to him in, in, this, in this time period. The painting of 1867 of the hut at Santa Dress is a painting that has gone essentially overlooked by generations of art historians. Monet shows it four times between 1868 and 1889. The only other painting he shows so much, the only other early painting he shows so much is Impression Sunrise. And so it's a painting that we have kind of left out of the conversation. And when I first saw it, which was alarmingly sh- a short time ago, I, I thought, well, this is really an incredible picture. It's It is a composition that if you showed it on a slide uh, quiz. Someone would say, oh, that's ha- bound to be 1882. It must be Varangeville. It must be the paintings that he makes of the little fisherman's cottage, which used to be a customs officer's uh, lookout post, perched over the sea on the Normandy coast. Well, instead, it's a some kind of hut, probably downhill from the famous terrace at Santa Dress, on a cliffside a, in this very fashionable resort a town or garden suburb, shall we say, of La Sat address And he's looking down onto the almost insultingly non-subject. It's a ramshackle cabin. The the flue that must be attached to a, a fire somewhere in the interior is actually held onto the cabin itself with a piece of wire. Far from being a garden bed like the carefully tended ones he shows in, in other paintings from that same year, the landscape in front is a is a mess of weeds and and it then rises to this incredibly beautifully painted sea and sky above that exactly the same ski and, sea and sky that you see in the background of the of the terrace at Santa dress at the metropolitan so it's a painting that is really from 1867 shown in 1868 1877 in the same show that he's showing the in the same show that he's showing the paintings of the Garcin Lazar, um, he's showing a, a hut on a Normandy coast from 1867, 10 years earlier. And then he's showing it again in a small group of paintings that he puts together to accompany in a private venue his 1880 Salon exhibition, a big landscape painting that's now in the Dallas Museum of Art. And then he includes it one more time in the big mid career exhibition that he organizes for himself with many, many dozens of paintings um, at the Gallery Georges Petit, where he debuts his Crows Valley paintings of 1889, but also shows a selection of early work, each one dated in the catalog scrupulously and listed with its well known collector as the lender to the exhibition. so In that way, it's a painting that I think he values. Don't ask me why. (laughs) But I think, I also think, and this is something I've come to really only after the exhibition has opened, the things that you learn after the show is, after the catalog is printed and after the show is on the wall are, uh, are legion. In this case, I am thinking that the fact that he brought it back to exhibition in 1880 may be exactly the the pivot point that he needed to start painting similar subjects in the first three or four years of the 1880s. So that re-encounter with the painting in the show of 1880 that he does in a a set of offices for a publication may well have have prompted him to return to that subject and make more versions of it. And he makes a dozen or more versions of of a hut perched over the sea. Um, with the same, often with the same, warm and cool interplay between the uh, between foreground and background.
0: This this 1867 painting features both boats with sails, which are a Monet favorite in these years, but also um, on the left hand side a number of steamships and their quite evident steaming steaminess rising up from the horizon. Is there could there be any significance between? that juxtaposition the sail ships and, and the steamships or, or not at all?
1: Oh sure, I think there is absolutely there an, an acknowledgement of modern transport. The sailboats that he so often paints in the pictures of the 1860s are very, very often fishermen's boats. They have dark gray, um, sometimes appearing even black sails. Oh. They're distinguished from the pleasure boats, which have bright white sails typically and so when you're when you're looking at a painting of ships in a harbor by a monet from the 1860s you can tell which ones are for people to go out and sail around in and which ones are out there to work and so you get already that distinction between pleasure and labor that is you know that is very much made though not insisted upon i think in, in this in this kind of work of monets but then always when there can, when there can be a factory Monet will include it. Take, for instance, the paintings, beautiful painting of Argenteuil that's in the National Gallery of Art, where you have both a pleasure boat, wonderful white sails in the sunset kind of picture on the, uh, the left, and then beyond it, the sort of pseudo chateau of a, of a rich man, and then beyond that, a factory, a smokesack for the manufacture of some goodness knows what, maybe canning of vegetables or something like that and and so all of those bits are there because monet wanted them to be there i mean this is an artist who can leave something out if he doesn't if he doesn't like the way it looks he leaves a steeple out of a painting because he it will mess up the sky but he when he puts that smokestack there you know it's not just because he saw it but because he wanted you to see it too and so the 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 juxtaposition of the smokestack and the sailboat is as We all learned from Robert Herbert and T.J. Clark back in the 18, uh, 1980s. I
0: said
1: 1980s. We learned from them to start reading the details because details matter. And in a painting that that has traditionally been interpreted only as note the play of light and shade and the beautiful sunlight. You could also say, note the factory, note the sailboat, note the bridge, note the broken bridge, note the fixed bridge, note the railroad bridge, note the the highway bridge. And the choice of subject matter for Monet is not simply what was there. It's him making choices about what to paint.
0: Marvelous. George Shackelford, thanks so much for talking with me.
1: Always great to be here.
0: That's all for this week's show.